Welcome to Startup to Scale, a podcast by Food Bevy. I'm your host, Jordan Buckner. Join me as I talk to aspiring entrepreneurs, seasoned industry experts, and everyone in between as we unlock the keys to growing from startup to scale. Hey everyone, Jordan here with the Startup to Scale podcast, and today I'm talking with Steve Candland, founder of Traveler's Soda. Steve launched his company in 2017 and ultimately decided to shut down the business five years later. We'll discuss why he started the company, his journey building the brand, and his final decision to close it. Steve, welcome to the podcast. I'd love for you to give a quick overview of how you got started. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Traveler Soda, it started on a beach in Australia. My, my wife and I, we had lived in Australia for a couple of years, and we had the wonderful opportunity of traveling around. We lived out of a couple of different camper vans around Australia. And and ginger beer is a big thing in Australia. It's a big thing in a lot of Commonwealth countries, much like root beer is here in the U.S., right? Like different places have their own versions and it's kind of, it's a big flavor. And I would always really love ginger beer before even before going to Australia. So as my wife and I were traveling and living out through Australia, I, I would always try the different ginger beers. And I remember exactly where I was. I was on a beach in Victoria, Australia, um, drinking a ginger beer I picked up in Tasmania. I was cooking dinner. I was cooking red curry, watching the sun set into the ocean, like just an incredible, beautiful I scenery, right? <laughs> right? And the thought occurred to me, like, our visa was running up. And so we had to come home back here to the States, because at least legally, right? And so, and the thought occurred to me, is anyone making ginger beer like this back home, back in the States, and from Utah, where we're from? And that, that was just the thought, right? And so a couple months later, when we ended up coming home, I couldn't find that same ginger beer. I mean, that was a locally brewed Tasmanian ginger beer. I could find some of the mass market ginger beers, but I couldn't find anything that was that same experience of like Australian ginger beer on a beach. I could not find it. What was unique about the flavors or the experience? Well, and that's kind of what spurred me making it is it had real ingredients. The ingredients listed were all stuff that I could get at the grocery store. And so I took a picture of the ingredient list when I was there on the beach and I was like, and when I got home, I was like, okay, this has lemons and limes and it has ginger and has some sugar. Okay, I know all those things are. If you look at other nutritional labels or ingredients on almost any food product, there's stuff in there that we just have no idea. Like what really is natural flavors? I mean, I can get get into why people do that. Yeah, I think it's a cop out, but whatever, that's a side <laughs> note. But like, I don't, where in the supermarket is yellow flavor color number five? What, what does that mean? I don't know. But I knew what ginger was, right? And I knew it. And so I went to the store and I started toying on with recipes just, just to see if I could get that same experience, that same flavor. And so I started a business and I, I created Traveler Soda. And so I made a ginger beer, I made a root beer and an apple beer. So ginger beer from Australia, root beer is almost exclusively an American flavor. And apple beer is traditionally from Germany. That's kind of where it started all with real ingredients, all things that you can pronounce, that you know what they are, that you as a consumer can get. And so that was the idea. It's a real soda with real ingredients. And flavors kind of inspired by key flavors from around the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I, I mean, I would hear when I was in business, 
you know, people would come up to me and be like, I love ginger beer. I have to try it. And they would try it. And they would tell me stories of like, I'm from Jamaica. I, this reminds me of the time I used to visit my grandma in Jamaica and she'd make ginger beer on her hut in the beach. Immediately they would say, well, this isn't as good as grandma Jamaica's, but it, it's a close second. I'm like, okay, <laughs> fair enough. You know, yeah. So or I'd hear stories of, you know, just like I would get those experiences from people, from, from people trying it. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, yeah. So you started making it yourself. And then how did you start bottling it in a way that you were able to sell? Yeah, I mean, this is probably the anyone listening who's familiar in CPG is going to laugh at my my naive, naiveness, naivete. Yeah. Whatever, right? Like I just I went to a commercial kitchen and I would I would I was I was buying whole lemons and limes I was cutting them in half and like hand juicing them I was like juicing whole ginger root like I had these giant pots right that I was like hand mixing and I would cool it down and I would bottle it at the time at the beginning I was even carbonating I was doing a natural carbonation with yeast which is a whole other thing I eventually moved to forced carbonation but I was I was hand doing everything out of a commercial kitchen which is like laughable, right? Like I would be working to 3 a.m. to wake up at 6 a.m. to make it to a farmer's market or hand deliver something. Like it was all a man. Well, you're <laughs> not alone. That's how most, I shouldn't say, at, at least half, if not 75% of people who are starting natural food companies, they're starting in like a commercial, their home kitchen, then their commercial kitchen. And that's the path to go. And for some products, it's a little bit easier. Baked goods tend to be a little bit easier. Uh, sure. Beverages fairly complicated and very difficult, right? Yeah, no, very, very difficult, very complicated. Cause I mean, you have so many factors, right? Like how are you making it? Is it going in a bottle or a can? And what's the preservatives? What's the shelf life? Is it refrigerated or not? And that kind of leads, and while I was kind of doing, you know, at farmer's markets and selling to some local bars and restaurants, that's really the reason why I shut down, had to shut down the business is because to actually scale just was out of my ability to bootstrap. Like to get into co-packing and manufacturing, just the price tags on things to get into manufacturing, I mean, you know, are just like, and and beverage sits a little aside from other food and beverage, right? Like the MOQs, minimum quantity orders, and the testing and formulation that goes into it was just out of my side, my reach of my bootstrap ability. And because the business was so small, it wasn't interesting to like your traditional investor, right? Because they would say, well, Steve, I know you're here and here and I like you and I, your product's amazing. You have a good story, but come talk to me when you're at a million dollars in revenue. And, and I would like, say, well, hey, you now to get to a million dollars in yeah, revenue. Yeah, but I was like, I need, I need four to 600K to get there. And they would shrug, shrug and be like, hey, good luck. Yeah, figure it out. So before we kind of get to the biggest problem, like, tell me about, like, what was the height of your, the, the business and like the kind of stores you were selling in and were any, was anything like going really, you know, well, or good signs as you were growing kind of like, what were the positives? Yeah. I mean, I had uh, all positives. I was in a couple, so I'm in Salt Lake city. I was in a couple bars and restaurants, a couple retail stores. And every time I would make a delivery, whether it was to a re, you know, small, um, retail grocery chain or like a restaurant or bar right like there was this one bar almost every time i would deliver i would get some sort of story of like steve 
your root beer is amazing. We had a couple come in last night. The one of the person, you know, the man was drinking, but the, the woman, she was pregnant. So she wasn't drinking any alcohol. And she asked us if we had anything different than just water or Coke from the hose. So we offered her your root beer and she was like, oh, this is amazing. It used to remind me of the time I went camping with my father and drink root beer by the fire. Right. So I'd hear these stories every time I would make a delivery to somewhere and people would be telling me, oh, oh, you're at this retail. Like I had people text me out of the blue and be like, oh, hey, let me know when you make a delivery. I'm going to go and buy everything that you deliver. Right. So while I was doing small deliveries, like a few cases here and there. Like people were loving it. People were picking it up as much as possible. And, and that may be, I don't know. How, I mean, that's pretty small. I don't know how like anecdotal that is, but like, I felt like there was a legitimate market for people that wanted a real soda with real ingredients. Right. I mean, who knows what's in Coke? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely much better than people saying like, yeah, no, it's not for me. And like walking away. So like that consumer trust is, is really important. And, the fact that they love the product and they try, they're willing to like tell you those stories because they love it so much and continue buying is definitely a huge proof point. Uh, but as you mentioned, there's all those barriers of, of just the fixed costs needed to make a beverage at scale that are really um, astronomical. We actually published a guide on how to manufacture your beverage product on the food bevy site. I'll drop the link in the show notes. Um, but we did that because beverage is one of the toughest categories to get into because you mentioned, right, the minimum order quantities are really, really high. And like the machines that make beverages make, you know, like a thousand cans a minute. And so to turn the machine on, they run it for like an hour and you have to make, you know, 60,000 cans in an hour. And then you have to have the ability to pay for that and sell that many. Um, it gets kind of astronomical, right? Did you, so did you like pursue that option of looking at, at co-manufacturers and what was that like? I did. Yeah. So I looked at a lot of different options. The lowest quote ish I ever got was 10,000 units. So 10,000 cans per flavor was the lowest like MOQ minimum order quantity that I ever got. And that was at like I didn't get a, like an official quote, but I was probably hovering around 85 cents to a dollar per can all in. So, right. So just for number's sake, let's say it's a dollar. So, and I had three flavors. So 10,000 times three is 30,000 per can. So that's $30,000 just to, for one run. And anyone in CPG in food and beverage is going to tell you, it's going to take you more than one run to get a perfect like as much as you try and every subsequent run, you're going to have some cans that just are going to spoil or didn't seal right or whatever. That's just like, you're going to have some errors. So not all 30,000 cans are going to be sellable. Even if you give it perfect on run one, which you're not right. You're going to be two or three runs in before you get anything sellable. So now, okay, now you're 90 K in before you have something sellable. And that's not including where are your ingredients coming from and shipping and designing labels and formulation? Like I had a recipe, but that isn't what's classified as a formulation that a manufacturer is going to accept. So just to get to pass my recipe to someone who's going to develop it in a formulation with industrial ingredients, that step alone is at least 12 to 20 to even like 60 K that step alone. 
right? So before you even have cans to sell, you're, I mean, I'm not adding it very well in my head, right? But now we're at it's like- okay, we don't need plus, to do live math. <laughs> right? But like, what, there, there's no like, like amount of- to $200,000 that you're kind of in? Yeah, already. And then that's not including, okay, what, how was shipping after? Where are you storing it? Do you have the capacity to actually sell that? And, right? And it, for me, although I did have some help of some individuals throughout the course of the business, because it wasn't just me, I was the main one responsible, bearing the burden of everything. Like that's undoable for me for one person. And it's, I did, don't have those, those, like, I don't have that type of credit card. <laughs> and I mean, and, and there's the cash outlay. There's, you know, like if you have 60 to 90, even 30,000 cans or bottles, where are you going to sell 30,000 cans or bottles? <laughs> yeah, right. And if you're looking at, okay, well, Steve, you just get connected to like distribution and, and retail. Well, I mean, anyone again familiar is going to say, well, it's not quite that easy because they call it resets, right? When does a retailer reshuffle things on the shelf, depending on where that falls in the lo- in line throughout the year, depends on whether or not they actually accept your product or not. And depending on your shelf life status, which again is testing that has dollar signs associated to it, right? So it's not just like I call up Smith's and say, hey, I can you get this on the shelf? Like there's six to nine months of work before even someone says, Steve, I like your product, let's get it on the shelf. And are you even able to get it to the shelf when they say yes? So there's this whole like complex <laughs> thing going on before you can even get something on the and shelf. At that time, maybe the product expired as well. I remember talking to a, uh, another beverage founder, their minimum that they produced for their product first run was like 60,000 units. All these pallets show up and they're like, holy shit, we have to move all this product. And they started taking retailers left and right that they knew would be bad partners because the product wouldn't display properly. They had no education. They didn't have budget for marketing to inform people, but they just literally felt the pressure to get the product out the door. They built out like, you know, a thousand or 1500 store locations in their first year, but didn't have the infrastructure to support it. And then a year and a half later, it all collapsed because they felt forced to force distribution um, to grow just to move the product um, and then got eaten on the back end with all the costs and fees associated with that. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that story time and time again, right? Like, so, I mean, you talk to people and they're like, oh, Steve, you just go sell it. I'm like, well, it's not. And on the, on the other side, what happens if you get into a retail store and it just goes gangbusters, right? People are loving it. I've seen people on that end where they can't keep it on the shelf and they still get, um, it's called delisted, right? They, the, the retailer still pulls you off the shelf because you're, the shelf is empty more often than it is full. And even though you sell out when you're on, they still don't, they don't want shelf stay, space empty. So even if it goes gangbusters, you still don't have the supply chain in line to connect that, to make sure that there's always product on shelf, you still may be out of business even if it's going really well, because you didn't do the work up front or have the ability to do that. Completely. And so I think, you know, that makes a lot of sense from the business perspective. I also want to talk about the mental and emotional toll of kind of running the business. And so tell me about like what your journey has been like, I'm guessing it's like very exciting at the beginning. And then at a certain point, maybe hitting a, a, 
time or like, this just isn't working and talk about like what that experience is like. I mean, yeah. I mean, starting anything's exciting, right? Cause you can make, you're making really big decisions and creative things at the beginning, right? You're coming up with a name and a logo and, and you're like, decisions have these massive impacts, right? Like, oh, okay, now we have, we have an LLC. Okay. That's bit. Okay. We have a website. Like, and then the further along you get, the decisions have smaller facing outcomes. Not that the outcomes are any less, right? But they like visually, I guess, or whatever, have less margin. I don't know. I can't think of the right word, right? And so I would always tell people, people would say, hey, Steve, how's it going? I would always say, I'm going to keep going until someone either hands me like a giant, I call it FU money, right? A giant check or I die. And that was my mentality. Like I was just going to go all in. And I mean, there were points, I mean, if you would ask my wife, right, she would be like some dark, dark moments. And just were like on a ball in the corner of the room or on the bed, like bawling your eyes out, (laughs) right? Because you're just like, there is no way through it. And eventually, sometimes you make your way through it. And it just got to a point where like, if I continue forward, death is going to be the option, Hmm. (laughs) right? Maybe maybe not like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) yeah, not a good way. Not like physically. Right. But like it's you're I'm heading towards a black hole of which there's no escape. And it's not like they're like, you're going into a black hole and interstellar and you come out like at the other end and like (laughs) life is perfect, like black hole ripped apart. And so the decision was, okay, if I continue forward, what does life look like? And I did not like, the way life looked like moving forward with the business, me personally, with my relationships, with my wife, with my other relationships that are important, with the relationship with myself, with my hobbies. And so that really was like the decision. Okay, well, there's got to be something. I want life to look better than what it is and what I see coming down the line. And that was really what forced me to shut down the business because there just wasn't a path forward in a healthy way to keep in the business. And I know that must've been really hard because for anyone, your business becomes attached to your identity, right? And so how, what led you to finally make that decision and, and what, how, like, what made you make that decision? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a fair question. So there's, there's a future life vision that I have for myself and for my family. And I have like very specifics of what that life looks like. What, what am I able to do? Where am I living? What are my surroundings? Right. I have a, like what a very clear vision of what that looks like. And for me to get there, the, the choice really was it's not going to come through continuing building traveler soda. And so that was the decision of if I want to move towards this better life, how do I move towards that? And the decision had to be made. It wasn't going to come through this business, at least not right now. And as hard as that was, and I, I am very connected to my emotions. Um, I work through my emotions. Like I'm kind of, an empath in a way that like, I always say I have to like digest emotions. And so I'm, I'm very good at connecting and figuring out 
core issues underlining stuff. So that was obviously a process to figure out what am I actually feeling? Where do I actually need to go? But going through that process, it just became clear that I had to shut it down and I had to move on. And I was losing out on opportunities that were going to lead me to my life, to the life that I wanted because I wasn't paying attention to other doors that were open or what other, because I was focused on this thing. And so it just didn't make, for all those reasons, it was like, okay, hey, well, this is the choice that has to be made. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, I think it, it definitely does. You know, it just made me think there's a philosophy that I've seen on LinkedIn right now, and I'm sure you have too, that people are saying like, you just have to persevere with your business for it to be successful. And, you know, people say like, oh, I almost failed 10 times before it was successful. Do you believe in that? No. Because I, I think there are times, well, I do think that you do have to work hard. I think that's uh, the foundation. But just working hard is not the only ingredient to success. There's a lot of other factors, some of which you have control over and some of which you do not. And so continuing to stay in something that's unhealthy just does not make any sense. I think there are times that are appropriate in life to say, this is it this is over, I'm quitting, I'm shutting down, I'm moving on. And that's with um, business. I think that's with relationships, right? Like sometimes we take like business out and we like, if we attach business to anything else, it doesn't make sense, right? You don't say to someone, well, Jordan, stay in un your unhealthy, abusive relationship because just like work it out. Like no one's going to, any reasonable person would say, Jordan, how do I help you get out yeah, of this unhealthy situation? Yeah. And the business, sometimes business is the same way, right? Like, okay, Steve, this is no longer serving you or your needs. This is unhealthy. What do we need to change? And sometimes that is, okay, I've got to, got to be done. And especially I like the part where you mentioned on, it's okay to, it's, it's good to move on to follow your, like where you want to be in life. And especially if there's areas for growth, right? Like if, if closing this door is going to open up other bigger ones that are going to get you the where you want to go. Um, I think that's, that's key because a lot of people do feel trapped. A lot of people feel like this is who I am. Who am I without this business? That's what everyone knows me for. That's where all my friendships and relationships are. And they feel like they can't get out. And I think that that's the, a big difference versus challenges where you still believe in the product. You still believe in the business and the life that you're living and you just need, you know, a retailer told you no, so your growth is going to be slower or something. Like that's a, a challenge to persevere through um, if you still believe in it. But if if it's not serving you in a healthy way, then then that's just going to be more detrimental to you. Yeah, absolutely. I was talking to another friend to they shut down an ice cream business. And there's a difference between, hey, someone calling you up and getting an order, which means that you have to go and work for till 4am to get the order in to deliver it. Like that's something you can muscle up and you can grit it out and do it. And there's a difference between that and someone's and someone coming to you and saying, Hey, Steve, it's 300 grand to do this. Or if you do this, you're here are the other consequences. You know, there's a difference of like, okay, I can grit and I can do this and I can muscle through of something that's actually doable to something that either is not or is going to have worse consequences than any outcome you might receive. So in speaking of growth, where do you see your path leading to you next? 
Yeah, I love CPG. I love food and beverage. I was talking to someone else and they were like, really, Steve, after all you've gone through, you want to stay in here? Like, what the, what's wrong with you? And this was someone who, who like I admire and who I like yeah. consider a, a leader in the space, you know? Um, but I think there's so many interesting things that can be done at every point, right? Like how our food is grown, how it's delivered, how we consume food. I think there's so much opportunity there. And I, I think there's a lot, consumers now are, are way more educated on what we consume and where it comes from. And we have opinions, we have values that we attach to things. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there within food and beverage. And I wanna stay in that space. So my perfect world would be for me to go to a little bit more established food and beverage company, use the skills, my entrepreneur spirit and grit that I've gained over the last few years and immediately add value to someone that's in high growth that can you know, use the skills that I've gained, kind of use my experience to future fuel their growth in a more established brand. I love that, Steve, and manifesting good things in in your future. So looking forward to it. I appreciate you being on the show today and being open and vulnerable and sharing your story. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love sharing my story and appreciate you having me on as well. Excellent. Thanks so much.